Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. My name is Sam. I'm uh, an associate pastor over at our Wrigleyville congregation about a mile down the street from here. Uh, and Jimmy, Jimmy invited me on Tuesday to fill in for him. And I said, I, I frankly don't have time to jump into your series. I just preached last Sunday, though, and I preached on the Lord's Supper and its relation to, to Passover. And he said, well, hey, we were just supposed to be in Exodus 11 and 12, which is where that Passover story would have been. So, so there's the link, as Carl pointed out. So you're going to get the, the first week of a series we started in Wrigleyville last week uh, uh, today. But don't worry, I changed some of the jokes. Uh, so hopefully, if they don't land, just at least give me a pity laugh, please. Um, but no, I, I'm grateful to be here. I love this community, uh, Missio Day Uptown. You all are some amazing folks. I love just the, the artistry and the creativity. I mean, come on. Like, the art here is amazing. I've, I've come to Good Friday Stations of the Cross. Um, I've just been able to witness the creative beauty that is on display in this community. But not only that, also just a true heart um, for mercy and for justice and to uh, really question and live out what does it look like to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a very real, tangible way. Um, so yeah, thankful to, to be a part of you. I, I honor and bless what you all are doing here, and, and it's just fun to get to be a small part of it. Uh, my wife and I have a seven-month-old named Rosalie. Yes, there she is. Um, and so she's been, is our first, and we're learning a lot, and uh, man, I tell you, the first few months are so, so hard, but it's been really rewarding now, and just seeing her become uh, a laughing, smiling, happy baby. But before having a baby, I used to be up to date and, and really in the know about all the cool new restaurants or cocktail bars or coffee shops. Shout out everybody's coffee. I remember when they first opened uh, in, in Chicago, just keeping track of what's going on and where the new hotspots were, right? My, my wife and I might be what you call foodies. And so we'd enjoy going out or, or finding a new place. And that changes when you have a seven-month-old, of course. You got to think twice before you go into certain restaurants. Um, but now, you know, we just have to be a little bit more intentional to call up a friend or a babysitter when we want to have a night out. And we got to go out on a date. We haven't, haven't gotten to go on a ton, but last week we got to go on one. And um, I remember when, before that, when we got confirmation from our friends who were willing to watch Rosalie, you know, they said, we can do it. And I just immediately pulled up my phone to try to make a reservation. I only had a few nights. And back in the day, I wouldn't have had to do this, but I Googled best new restaurants in Chicago and all these cool places start popping up, right? And it just reminded me what an amazing city we live in. The food here, the people here. On a random Tuesday night in October or in September, the, the restaurants are just jam-packed with people. Some people come from around the world just to eat the food in Chicago, right? Or we have our favorite local neighborhood spots that we don't want to, people to, to learn about, right? Chicagoans love good food. It doesn't even have to be those 
expensive or hard to get into places where you need a reservation. Sometimes a falafel or chicken shawarma from Taste of Lebanon or a slice from GGO's is just as satisfying as the best three-course meal you can find. Or even better, I mean, the, the weather's changing, but we still got a little bit of time. Just invite some friends over, throw some burgers on the grill, right? Or pack a picnic, bring it over to the lake. Who needs a fancy steakhouse when you've got Montrose Harbor, right? But the thing is, good food and drinks are a gift from God in and of themselves. But at the end of the day, I think there is a deeper beauty about food because of the way it brings people together. We all, as humans, long to find deep, meaningful relationships. We look forward to those Friday night dinners with friends or Sunday afternoon coffee dates with the people we love. And yet, eating alone is an epidemic that is on the rise, not just here, but around the world. You know those single portion meals you get in the freezer section at the grocery store? We call them TV dinners. I don't know if they still call them that. But growing up, you know, Hungry Man or some of those. Uh, and, and so I was researching TV dinner sales have been on the rise decade after decade for the past several decades because we, we just... That's what we do, we eat alone. I mean, think about it. If you work in an office or maybe you work remote, when was the last time you went out to lunch with your coworkers rather than just eating alone at your desk? This isn't merely a, a preference like introvert, extrovert thing. There's studies now that are showing that eating alone over and over again as an ongoing pattern can actually pose serious health risks. Studies show um, you have a higher likelihood for heart disease, you, a higher likelihood for strokes or type two diabetes if you eat alone over and over and over. Not only are there physical health issues, but eating alone has been linked to higher levels of unhappiness and emotional dissatisfaction. Um, in the UK, they've started a national initiative that they're calling the Big Lunch. I love that name. Um, and it's just a way of encouraging people to eat more meals together, to even pause in the middle of a busy workday for a big lunch with your coworkers. Their research has shown, and they've done this research with the University of Oxford, and it's shown that people who eat together more regularly have increased levels of happiness, satisfaction, and well-being. Um, whether it's a big meal out or just a snack together or just a cup of coffee around the coffee table. Um, if only there was a community of people who was intentionally living together and eating together, um, maybe we could learn from them. No, that, we don't know much about that in Wrigleyville, but I know many of you do this intentionally in the Jesus people, and I, I love that, by the way. I think that's amazing. But for those of us who don't live in intentional community, many of us don't know where to start. Many of us live alone or we haven't found those friendships or community who we can call up on a Thursday night and say, hey, I'm feeling a little lonely. Can we grab dinner? Can I have you over? Even if it's just a cup of ramen noodles, can we just be together? Um, I found most of this research from a book called Eat and Flourish, which just came out less than a year ago. And um, at the end of the excerpt that I really read and, and appreciated, the author Mary Albright has this quote that I found funny and, and compelling. She says this, 
Andy Warhol once said, I want, to start a chain, I want to start a chain of restaurants for other people who are like me. You get your food, and then you take your tray into a booth and watch television. With home and curbside delivery of Michelin-starred meals and streaming media, I think we've effectively achieved Warhol's dream if we want it. But there's a better way to live. There's a better way to live. What is this better way of life? And how do we practice it? Well, in the Christian tradition, we call this way of life communion. Communion or community would be another translation. Other people have taken that word communion and, and called it the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. or It just depends what local church you're a part of. But whatever name we give it, what we as humans deeply long for is not just good food to eat alone, but communion, community with one another, and, and ultimately communion with God. Like all of us, Jesus loved sharing good food and drinks around the table with his friends. The very first miracle in the Gospel of John that Jesus performed was not healing the sick, or giving sight to the blind, although he would go on to do those things. The first miracle Jesus performed was saving a failing wedding feast by turning over a hundred gallons of water into wine. And we're not talking about two buck chuck, okay? This was the good stuff. This was the reserve, show, whatever, I don't know much about wine, but the stuff that's hard to get, okay? Jesus is famous or infamous, depending on who you ask, for spending lots and lots of time around the table with tax collectors, prostitutes, and, and the kind of people that overly religious types like to call sinners. That's who Jesus ate meals with. Jesus fed thousands with a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. He broke bread with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it was only around the table when Jesus broke the bread that they recognized who he really was. There's another story after the resurrection where Jesus finds his disciples by the Sea of Galilee and he cooks breakfast for them. And then of course, there's the story that Carl just read for us, the Last Supper, the last meal that Jesus shared with his friends before his death is one of the central events of the Christian story. It's inspired countless pieces of art from Leonardo da Vinci to Salvador Dali and maybe Carl Sullivan. I don't know if he has a piece on that. I hope he does. He's up there with those folks for sure. Um, the Last Supper was the center of gravity for the early Christians in the early church. Um, but for many today, remembering the Last Supper of Jesus has been reduced to a little piece of bread and a sip of juice. How could something so powerful, so inspiring, so meaningful become what for many of us seems like an empty symbol? If I could put it simply, I think many of us have forgotten how to remember. We've forgotten how to remember. I really wanna just zero in on one verse for the rest of our time together and just unpack it a little bit uh, together. So Luke 22, verse 19 says, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There is so much 
packed into one single sentence, one single verse in scripture. We could spend months and months unpacking it, but I don't think we have that much time. So we're just going to focus on the second half, just that one line, do this in remembrance of me. I want to ask two questions to um, unpack this idea of remembrance. First, what exactly are we supposed to remember? And second, how do we remember those things? So what and how? First, what? When we look at the Lord's Supper, it's extremely important for us to understand the context. Here's the link to the Exodus series. As we read in our passage, the Last Supper took place on Passover. For Jesus, his disciples, and the Jewish people, the Passover meal was a yearly celebration to remember Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. Um, It's mostly laid out in Exodus 12 and 13. I'm going to give it just a super quick Um, just gloss over the original Passover. And hopefully I don't steal Jimmy's thunder if he's going to preach on this soon. So I'll just be quick. Here's the original Passover. Uh, Before this meal of unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and roasted lamb, each Israelite household, they were living in slavery in Egypt, but each Israelite household had to sacrifice a pure, unblemished male lamb and take its blood and smear it over their door frame. Smear it kind of around their door, right? And this blood over the doors was a a symbol. It was a way to set the Israelites apart from the Egyptians so that God would see the blood and pass over, pass over, pass over those homes uh, while while God was was freeing the Israelites from, from Egypt. And while this was happening that night, Pharaoh saw it and he told Moses and Aaron, that the Israelites are, are free to go, get, get out of here. And this began the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for nearly four, for over 400 years. So it's really an understatement to say that Passover is one of the most important events in all of Israel's history. If you know any uh, people from Israel or Jewish people today, they most likely still celebrate Passover. It's one of the most widely observed Jewish holidays to this day. And Exodus 12.42 explains why. Um, in Exodus 12:42, it says, because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. Fast forward a little bit. Jesus gathers his disciples for their final Passover meal together. Here they are doing what they would have done every single year at this time. They were eating a meal together. They were celebrating and remembering what God had done for them by bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt, by liberating them from oppression and slavery. And this is where things get interesting, okay? So they're eating this meal, they're enjoying their wine, they're feasting on roasted lamb together. And Jesus starts to say some confusing things, okay? It would have been normal for Jesus to break bread and and hand it out to them. They didn't have uh, cutco knives like we do today. So he would have had to break it with their hands, pass it around, that's normal. But it's not normal for him to break it and say, this is my body given for you, right? Again, normal to pass around the wine. They may not have had multiple glasses, so they're just sharing a glass of wine. And Jesus, that would have been normal, but not normal for Jesus to say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 
Jesus is expanding their understanding by beginning to reveal to the disciples that Passover is ultimately about him. Rather than needing to sacrifice this unblemished lamb, Jesus wants them to see that he's giving himself as the sacrificial lamb for his people. Rather than needing to mark their door frames with blood, Jesus is inviting them to mark their very bodies, their whole selves, with the blood of the new Passover lamb. Hence why John the Baptist said this, Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or why the Apostle Paul would remind the church in Corinth, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival. Jesus is doing two things. He's reminding his disciples of the Passover and this event in history and its meaning. But he's also revealing his new identity as the Passover lamb of God. So just like the disciples, you and I, every time we gather to receive the Lord's Supper, we're invited to remember, to remember the Passover. We remember the story of God's liberating power in freeing the Israelites from slavery. But we also remember that God can liberate us from our bondage today. Scott McKnight has this great quote. He says, the Lord's Supper, like Passover, is in fact a liberation meal given for an occupied people. When we remember the Passover around the communion table, we remember that our God can free us from sin, from sickness, from systemic injustice that holds us and our world in slavery. A lot more could be said about that, but that's the first thing that we remember. We remember the Passover. And now we're gonna look at the second thing that we remember at the Lord's Supper. And let's just take a more simple, literal reading of Jesus' words. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is telling his disciples to gather for bread and wine around a table in remembrance of him. Jesus knows that we humans can be pretty forgetful and we need reminders preferably tangible, visible reminders of God's love and God's presence in our lives. But remembering Jesus is not merely about knowing that Jesus existed in history. Oh yeah, I remember that guy, Jesus. It's to remember and reflect on the story of Jesus, his work in the world, his miraculous but pretty underwhelming birth story. All these normal moments that he had in his life and the surprising ones, uh, his baptism, fasting, temptation in the wilderness, his time of prayer in lonely, quiet places, and then his miracles, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, feeding the hungry, and so on. So we remember the life of Jesus, but we also remember the death, the death of Jesus at the hands of the Roman Empire. We remember the resurrection of Jesus three days later, and we remember that he ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. When we remember Jesus, we not only look back to the things that Jesus has already done, we look forward to the promises, right? What did we sing? All your promises are yes and amen. Well, it doesn't always feel that way because they haven't been answered yet. We look forward to the promises of Jesus that he will answer in the future. We take seriously the words that he said, like in Matthew 28, 20, that 
Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. To remember Jesus is to become aware, to, to mentally, intellectually, and beyond that, become aware that Jesus was not only in the past, he'll not only be in the future, but he's always with us, present and active to the very end of the age. Now with all this talk about remembering and thinking about the Passover and remembering Jesus, you might be thinking, Sounds great and all. I can't even remember what I had for dinner on Friday night. I get it. If you were at my house, you would remember I made carne asada tacos and they were memorable. They went quick, no leftovers. But um, I, I, I get it. I get it. I really do. This is a, a complex way of talking about the word that we, we, when we just normally talk about the word remember, we're not really bringing all of this into to mind, right? So that brings us to our second question. We've talked about what we should remember. Now let's talk about how. How do we actually do this? How do we actually remember like this? So let me use a, a few uh, big words here to make myself sound smart. So we must remember in a holistic, integrated way rather than a compartmentalized way. Here's what I mean by that. It's so easy for us to compartmentalize, to separate the different parts of ourselves, right? To, to divide our minds from our bodies, from our souls. A word for this is disintegration. We, we separate, we, we compartmentalize. And in our day and age, especially when we talk about remembrance, we tend to prioritize our minds. We neglect our bodies and our souls. In the words of Jamie Smith, we have reduced human beings to brains on a stick, right? But if our minds are really the most important part of us, if the intellect is really where the good stuff happens, then why didn't Jesus just tell the disciples to think about him a lot? Why didn't he just tell them to gather and share all these great memories of him? Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but Jesus didn't merely pass on words to remember or even song lyrics to sing in memory of him. It's no accident that Jesus told, cho chose visible, tangible, real life things like bread and wine alongside physical actions like eating and drinking, something all of us do to do in remembrance of him. Scott McKnight, again, just this simple phrase. He says, the Lord's Supper is an act of embodied remembrance. I love that. It's not just in our minds or our intellect. It's, it's not just in our souls or, or unphysical parts of us. It's embodied. Research from books like The Body Keeps the Score and others have shown us that long after the mind forgets, long after the mind has moved on, the body still remembers, both positive experiences and traumatic ones. An obvious example of embodied remembrance would be when a veteran comes home from war with PTSD and they hear a loud noise and they immediately run for cover. That's not an intellectual choice that they're making. It's their body remembering something. Or when you or I smell a home-cooked meal after a long time or we hear that familiar song that we loved in high school and it just transports us back, back home or back to that place or that memory. In the same way, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying that whenever you break bread and drink wine together, remember that I am with you. Remember the liberation that God brought to Israel and the liberation that you can find in my life, in my death, in my resurrection. Um, 
whenever Shannon, my wife, or, or I are away from one another for a few days, uh, you know, we go out of town for, for this or that or, or whatever it is. We, of course, text each other and check in. Hey, how's it going? Whatever this or that. But you probably know this. If you're out of town, you're, you're with the people you're with. You're not thinking about texting all day, right? So sometimes a whole day can go by and we won't really talk. But even on those days, we always, always, always text each other right before we go to bed. I miss you. I love you. Something just simple, right? We're so romantic. Um, and, and as much as I appreciate those texts, and I know that they're true, I, I know that she means them, there's nothing quite like that welcome home hug that I get after I've been gone for a few days, right? I know that we love each other, but there's something different about experiencing that physical reminder of our love. That's what the Lord's Supper is meant to be, right? In other words, to use a fancy old church word, it's a sacrament, a sacrament. Um, there's a famous definition by St. Augustine or Augustine, depending who you ask. Um, and he says a sacrament is an outward visible sign of an inward invisible grace. And let's simplify this. An outward visible sign like a long hug after days spent apart. Of inward invisible grace, the love between two people. A visible sign like bread and wine around a table of invisible grace, the broken body of Christ, the blood of Christ poured out for our liberation. So we remember with our bodies, the Lord's Supper is an act of embodied remembrance. And here's, here's my last thing. How else do we remember? I've got a quote by N.T. Wright, a great theologian who who is just so smart and says things uh, beautifully, but we remember by bringing the past into the present. We bring the past into the present. Here's, here's his way of saying that. The hardest thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not merely mean bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bringing that past story and divine action of the past into the present such that the present audience becomes part of the story and receives the benefit from such actualization. In other words, simplify this, we're invited to look at time in a different way. We don't merely look at this past story, but we bring that past story into the present and we become part of the story. We don't just remember the Last Supper, but we trust that the very moment we're about to share together around the table is the Lord's Supper. Jesus is present here and now once again taking broken and blessed bread and handing it to us with those familiar words, this is my body given for you. And just like the disciples surely would have had their confusion and questions, we will have ours. What are you talking about, Jesus? Your body? Your blood? How can this be? Thousands of years of church history with countless disagreements and divisions, and we still can't exactly explain what is happening around the communion table. So yes, we will have our questions, and, and some of us more than others will really want to get uh, a, a logical, intellectual understanding of these things. But I don't believe we can. The Lord's Supper is a mystery. 
It's a mystery. The word in the New Testament, which gets translated into English down the road years and years later as sacrament, is the New Testament Greek word mysterion, mystery, right? The sacraments are mysteries. Remembering in this way, this this fuller, deeper way, this embodied remembrance that goes beyond just linear time like we think of it. It brings the past into the present. It requires us to embrace mystery. We have to do what we can to put aside the how can this be questions and just embrace the mystery of the Lord's Supper. And when we do that, we won't need to fully understand exactly what is happening. We can just taste and see that the Lord is good. We can allow ourselves to finally experience that communion that we all so desperately long for. The communion that we seek in our Friday dinners and our Sunday coffee dates. The communion we seek at lunch with coworkers or at picnics on the beach. And maybe by God's grace, we can begin to realize if we would ask the spirit to open our eyes and and help us see things as they really are. If we would make ourselves present to the God who is always present with us, maybe we can begin to realize that we are never actually eating alone. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.